Hello and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Bit of a, a test in time. It is, yeah. Uh, self-isolating, you may be able to tell the slight difference in the audio this uh, episode. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a test in time. But as ever, the music community is really rallying around itself. Um, live streams of gigs with Valiade last week, which raised uh, £40,000. Um, and we're streamed live on the AMA app, which is... Uh, Got a world of uh, entertainment at your fingertips. Yeah, it's a great initiative set up by the guys from Pest. You know, uh, loads of uh, great channels on there. We're really fortunate to be one of those channels as well. There's um, some great content on there. Really recommend uh, watching uh, Kieran Evans's uh, Mannix live concert documentary, uh, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. Got a limited run, but I'm sure there's going to be more great content uh, while we're all self-isolating. And, you know, music's a, a medicine at the best of times. So we're going to try and help you know, by getting as much content as we can as well onto the AM platform and onto our own sort of social channels. So so um, stay tuned there. Yeah, and we've got a great uh, episode in store for you. I think it's one of our best so far. Um, Gavin Fitzjohn, really good bloke and a familiar face on the Welsh music scene um, with his live session playing and production work with the Manic, Stereophonics, uh, Griff Rees and the Super Fury Animals. Uh, you may recognise him from the Barry Horns, the Welsh football group uh, as well. Um, and yeah, I think me and you have said to each other in the past, James, uh, just it's incredible the amount of instruments he pops up on stage playing as well. Yeah, great guy. Um, such a talented guy. Um, plays all of these instruments that, you know, we mentioned in the podcast, trumpet, piano, guitar, and, you know, so humble with it as well, which is great. Yeah, that's uh, something that struck me straight away with uh, Gavin, his modesty. Uh, really great guy. And um, I loved his uh, choice of album as well, straight up. What's yeah, you, Badfinger, amazing. It was quite difficult not to just go into the story of Badfinger, which is such a tragic story. But we wanted to talk about the music and such a fantastic album. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's probably my favourite uh, Badfinger as well. As you say, it's sort of the saddest story in rock, maybe victims of circumstances, certainly some. Uh, unscrupulous management decisions but um, they deserve much much wider recognition um, Pete Ham's songwriting genius should be celebrated so much more especially in Wales um, maybe it's something we could uh, cover in um, a special episode sometime James yeah definitely I think we're not going to be able to record any new episodes luckily we've got a backlog of um, some amazing guests that you know we can keep doing this and, and recording remotely if anyone's got any suggestions of things they want us to cover we're thinking of doing like album or live performance watch alongs listen alongs as well so if there's anything that you 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 want to you want to get involved with please let us know thanks for downloading enjoy the episode Rando. so thanks for coming on the show gav thanks for having me no problem at all um i saw you recently well we both did uh, on stage uh, with kelly jones on his solo tour and was so impressed i was trying to find the message i sent to neil after the gig about how impressed i was with the the multi-instrumentalist gavin fitzjohn on the stage yeah <laughs> Yeah, just moving around, constantly changing instruments. How many do you actually play? I mean, there's instruments that I feel like I, I play and then some that I just... I guess horns traditionally were, you know, tr trumpet and sax were kind of what I did for a long time as a session guy. And then, yeah, over, over the last few years, I've been playing a lot more, lot more guitar and then just kind of always kept up my piano. Yeah, that's always really fun. So you're often referred to as a multi-instrumentalist and you're saying you're like this... Um instruments you busk to like an extent <laughs> what, what would be your favorite and what would be the ones you sort of most natural on um trumpet was the first instrument i started to play i think i was eight years old and a, a lady came around the school and and back then it was kind of subsidized subsidized and things like that and so um I asked if i wanted to learn uh, like if anyone in the class wanted to learn a bass brass instrument so i chose the trumpet and i think i think i pretty much just chose the trumpet because it was small and i was quite small which is quite crazy when you think my whole life's kind of trajectory has been because i kind of was like well i'm small so i'll play the trumpet but yeah so i started doing that so i get so that's the one i've played longest but having said that it's very much a love-hate relationship because you know it's, you have to practice all the time you can't kind of let let it go with the trumpet so yeah i do love to play it but it's it's hard work for sure that's quite interesting you say that because i hear like sean moore's the same is that right yeah there's like there's a there's a phrase trumpet players say and it's like, if i don't practice one day i notice the difference if i don't practice for two days you notice the difference so yeah i mean if you're not kind of playing a lot you, yeah if it's it's difficult it is difficult so were you surrounded by music and instruments at home when you were a child or was it literally just that school well i was eight so so like pretty young i mean there was a lot of music in the house not so much instruments um people often ask you know do your parents you know play anything or anything like that but yeah we, there was a lot of music in the house my mum was a big rock fan and and like loved doing Motown and Tamla and stuff like that so I remember we used to listen to a lot of records you know properly kind of sit me down two armchairs and, and put a record on so it'd be a lot of uh yeah Beatles, Stones, The Who, 
Sabbath, that's the record I remember first ever hearing, kind of sat us down and like Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath went yeah. on, you know, and I remember looking at the front cover and it's, it's scary now to yeah, look yeah. at, to be honest. It's like a ghostly figure in a, you know, churchyard. And I remember it kicking in and it's kind of like uh, sound effects of rain and thunder and then a church bell and then that huge guitar riff comes in. I, re- I remember that really vividly and being quite, like, quite scared, to be yeah. honest. You know, I was like six years old or something. So yeah, I remember listening to a lot of music. A great education though, with Beatles, Stones, Sabbath. Yeah, um, yeah. my mum saw a bunch of those bands as well. Amazing. She's got some amazing stories, like hitchhike to Wolverhampton to see Sabbath in a pub and she saw the Stones in Isle of Wight. And, and we'll have to get her on. Yeah. <laughs> Bezza. <laughs> yeah. And did you get anything passed on from your siblings? Are you an only child or siblings? Or? Yeah, uh, my sister's uh, an actress, actually. Yeah, so my sister's an actress and she, and she sings. And then my, yeah, my brother's a massive, was a massive music fan. He, he was quite a lot, lot older than me, actually. And he went to uni in, uh, in London, like in the early 90s. So you can imagine like the kind of like scene he was, uh, he was in. He was well into his kind of rave stuff. So I remember him kind of coming home enlightened by this music and <laughs> sit, sitting me down and playing me, you know, like Kraftwerk and Aphex Twill and Square Push or stuff like that and I was just like what the hell is this you know wow so yeah I remember that as well that was kind of going on you know I was yeah really close to my siblings growing up as well so before we get on to uh, Paolo Natini the Manix Furries let's talk about uh, Adequate 7 the mm. uh, genre busting band that you, you joined in 2003 yeah I, I joined the band straight out of school so it would have been yeah 2003 summer and I remember everybody filling in they like UCAS forms or whatever at the start of the summer and that just seemed mental to me. I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to, like, three or four years of learning, like, you know, no chance. I'm going to be in a band. I'm in a band, man. Um, you know, had that whole chat with a careers advisor and all that stuff. He's like, need a backup plan. I was like, nah, I'll be fine. So yeah, I left school and I was playing in another local band um, from Cate's called Chemical Reaction. And one of the guys from that kind of said, oh, there's this band called Adequate Seven, who I had seen play um, and they're looking for a trumpet player. I was like, oh well, you know, this is this is this is my end. So yeah, th- th- there was mostly made up of guys from um, that went to Cardiff Uni. So I j- so I ended up joining them, and uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. I was like three three years of you know touring in a in an old um, transit van and sleeping on floors and in, around the UK and Europe and yeah, pretty pretty wild experiences. Did did you have to audition? There was there was an audition. How did that go? Rigorous that? rigorous audition <laughs> process uh, in music box in the old music box when it used to be. Yeah. Uh, Canton way and God it's a long time ago yeah I think I just kind of like I had the, the first record on CD and I just I just laid out a bunch of tunes and just went in with like an amazing kind of naive kind of <laughs> just like security and confidence and yeah. Um, and yeah and did that and then yeah they just kind of asked me to join and, and pretty soon after I, I uh, moved in to the house they all lived in because there was seven, seven of us living in a three-bedroom house in Riverside. I say three bedrooms, like the, it was like an attic conversion. Yeah, so yeah. I, I guess three, two and a half bedrooms. So I was, yeah, I was on the sofa for a long time and then graduated to an actual bed, which, <laughs> was, which was good. I had to share that bed, mind. Okay. Um, was it like a standing with the band? Like you get to a certain level and you get a bed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A gold star and yeah, and, and, and yeah a, cut, a blanket. <laughs> um, but no, that was amazing. You know, I, I guess I can that to be my uni years type thing you know and I met a lot of people and like a lot of people you even meet now in the industry you know working at labels like you know you knew from bands back then or, yeah. or TM like tour managers and stuff you know it was it was an amazing amazing kind of introduction to that world and did you get into the band around the time of the single was it Splitting Up? I think it was a little later I think Splitting Up came out in maybe like 2005 or something like that so they just released um, the first record which was uh Songs of Innocence and of Experience, and then well, I'm dredging this from my memory now. <laughs> uh, and then we we did like some UK dates at the end of that year, and then we went on tour with an American punk band called Suicide Machines, and we when we did a European tour, I remember because it was absolutely freezing. <laughs> You know, just like wearing like a little jumper and stuff, <laughs> like sleeping in a sleeping bag in a van. And yeah, and then yeah, just did a, yeah, a bunch of UK tours and then yeah, supported some bands in Europe and stuff like that. It was amazing, yeah. We're still like close friends with a lot of those guys now as well. And Tom, who played trombone in that band, is, we've done quite a lot of stuff together. It's Tom Pinder. Yeah, of Cardiff Arches Cardiff, fame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the Welsh Cheese Company as oh, well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I yeah. remember when he up the Welsh yeah. Cheese Company. He's the Welsh Alex James, is he? Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I actually said that to him. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> and didn't Zane Lowe call Splitting Up the hottest record in the world? I think that may have been said. Yeah, that's yeah, quite I, I remember, yeah, we were really excited. I remember he, he played the song twice. Yeah, well, like, he stopped it halfway through. 
and he went he went I'm just going to play it again or whatever <laughs> and he started it again and we were all buzzing I bet and uh, really yeah excited for uh, the stardom we were going to have <laughs> which didn't quite pan out I told a, a friend of mine today that I was going to be talking to you this evening and he was so excited because uh, I had Adequate 7 up on my computer and he was like oh I love that band you know I supported them in the in the Medicine Sans Frontier benefit gig in, no in 2006 in club yeah so uh, still loads of still loads of fans mate <laughs> And then the band split up, and I remember there was like a <coughs> final gig, final performance uh, in 2006, um, and Get Kate Where Cape Fly supported you, and, That's right, yeah. and you and Tom uh, both joined the live band together or separately? Yeah, I mean, um, so uh, Sam Duckworth, who, who is kind of, you know, Get Kate Where Cape Fly, he was in that scene as well, in that kind of like punk rock kind of DIY scene, and so we... we done some dates with him and there was, a, there was another band as well from um, Hitchin in Hertfordshire called uh, they were called Fog Donkey and then they then they changed their name to Boom the Diamond Industry <laughs> and they're like an amazing band yeah. I, think there's, I think there's a record out there that you, you can get hold of by Boom the Diamond Industry and they're amazing but the drum, drummer from that band as well was called uh, Andy Theakstone who's a good friend of mine and he was drumming with with uh, Get Cape as well so I think when I spoke to Andy on the phone I guess like towards the end of 2006 I just said oh you know I think Ad Seven's splitting up and he was like oh you know Sam's Get Cape has just been signed to Atlantic Records he's like you know so you should oh Andy produced that record as well sorry um, Sam's first record Andy produced so he said you know we've got some horns on that you should try and try and get on the gig so I kind of crowbarred my way <laughs> in there and um and yeah, and then ended up joining joining Sam's band and did that for about a year, year and a half or something yeah. like that, which is amazing. I mean, Sam is the, the absolutely loveliest guy and that was definitely a step up in terms of gigs and, and things like that. You know, we played kind of Glastonbury and we were playing maybe, oh, I don't know, like the, the Forum in London or something like that, you know, like a couple of thousand. So that, you know, that was absolutely a step up from kind of... Yeah, different experience on the road as well. Instead of sleeping bag in a van, did you get better? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. More beds. Which yeah. Was, it was a great. It was a great time for me. And, and, and beds. It's like a theme. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, definitely, a, definitely a step up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Paolo Nutini came calling. How did that all come about? Quite literally, came calling. It was. Um, uh, I think it was like. A, it was, I think it was a Friday afternoon, and Sam. Get Cape um, called me and he said, oh, Gav, someone from Atlantic Records has, has called and uh, Paolo Nutini is looking for a trumpet player. And I kind of knew of Paolo, like the name, I guess at that, at that point he'd had the first record out, you know, New Shoes and um, Last Request, Gender Me Hasty, those kind of songs. So I, I, I knew of him um, and I was like, oh, okay, amazing. You know, that, that, that'd be awesome. And he said, you might get a call from someone at some point today. You know, the, the afternoon passed and no one called. So I, I went to the pub and I was having a drink. And uh, the phone goes, and it's and it's and it's Paolo. <laughs> I've been a chat to him, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, so I, I want to do uh, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, a, a, a gig tomorrow. If you're up for doing like a little trumpet solo in the middle of it, I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great.' And then just as about as he was about to hang up, he went, "So I'll see you outside Wembley tomorrow morning." <laughs> I went back to my table and I sat down. I was like, oh, boys, I was like, well, is there something going on? At, like, what's happening at Wembley tomorrow? And it turns out it was that live Earth gig that yeah, was yeah. Um, like Al Gore's kind of thing. <laughs> so I went home, list, listened to What a Wonderful <laughs> World by Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Got a bit, a bit of practice in. And yeah, went down, went down the next day and yeah, played Wembley Stadium. It was it was insane. It was insane. Petri petrifying. Who else was on the bill that day? Oh, like, ev like everyone and anyone. There was like absolutely massive people playing. The one I really remember was Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Spinal yes, Tap. Yeah. I just I remember doing it and then just being, you know, I didn't know anyone there. I, I, I barely kind of chatted to Paolo and the band beforehand. We had like yeah. literally one run through and I was kind of on my, you know, on my toad a little bit and then just played it and then just got, just got a bit drunk because I was just like so relieved to have done it. But yeah, it, it was, it was wild. I think the footage is still out there on YouTube of that gig. I think I've got like a little ponytail thing going as well. <laughs> so I mean, you true, you do truly need to check that out. Yeah, it's horrific. Maybe. I, think, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'll have to Google it's that. It's like a little, I, I, even rat's tail might be a better... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we've all had our head nightmares. Don't worry about it. But the relationship with with Paolo evolved. It wasn't just you playing the trumpet. Then yeah. you know you arranged and co-wrote a lot of the tracks. Yeah, I stayed. I just stayed in contact with him after yeah after the summer of two thousand and seven that gig at Wembley. And then in the start of January two thousand and eight, he just called and said we're going to go to uh, Grouse Lodge. It's a residential studio in Ireland to start recording what would be Sunny Side Up, which was his second record. So I went out there for a week or something like that. And then we went back there later in uh, the summer of 2008. And then, yeah, from that point, really, like some some gigs were put in the diary and then it was 
kind of thought, like, well, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the band, I guess. <laughs> so I ended up pretty much, yeah, 2008, kind of permanently kind of member of the band doing that. How long was that for? I mean, well, I mean, I've, I've kind of done that since. I mean, yeah. I've obviously played with a lot of people yeah. like at the same time, you know, and kind of go around cycles of having records out and things like that. But yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, 11, 12 years yeah. or something now, which oh. is what, like the whole of my 20s, when that's, that yeah. is quite crazy to, when you think about that. So how did stuff like um, Cirque du Soleil and, uh, Jules Holland and Ollie Murs, all these poor people come about. <laughs> That's an amazing list of like Cirque du Soleil, Jules Holland, it's Ollie Murs. It's a very Murs. diverse list, yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah, the Cirque du Soleil, I mean, that, that really truly feels like it's just an, another lifetime ago. It's such a surreal experience. I just I got an email from a friend of mine who has had, somehow had a connection at Cirque and said um, they're looking for a uh, multi-instrumentalist. They're looking for someone who could play some trumpet and guitar. So I had to put like an audition tape together and it was just, it all happened very quickly. I mean, I put the tape together in like the March and April and then a few weeks later they called and just said like, yep, you've got the job. And it was filling in for someone. But I think every five years you work for them, you can like take a year sabbatical or something like that as a musician. And so the guy was, was taking his year off or best part of. So yeah, I came in and I played trumpet and sax. Sorry, that's a lie, trumpet and guitar. And we did like a kind of a, a tour of the kind of south of the states Texas and Phoenix and a few other places like yeah all the all the get up I had like the whole outfit and like to do my makeup and stuff yeah. it was quite, it was a quite Sergeant Pepper's inspired outfit it feels like a feels like it didn't happen in a way <laughs> it must be so surreal you mentioned earlier that you chose the trumpet when you were well, eight it, and yeah. then you know that has led you to going to Texas and, and other places in the yeah, south totally. of yeah. yeah totally it was a really good one though it was a really good gig to do I mean I think it was like eight months and it was a lot of pressure you know, it was a, it was a you know, huge organisation and really highly regarded. And uh, playing-wise, it was a, a test, but it was a really kind of healthy one. And yeah, and my, yeah, my makeup skills are <laughs> pretty good now. Uh, talking of the uh, trumpet, it was the fir- my first sort of um, instance of uh, seeing you on stage with the Mannix, actually, um, where it seemed to be at the start, it was initially sort of um, James's acoustic interludes with... Um, Kevin Carter on Ocean Spray with the trumpet part. Then by the time uh, Resistance of Futile toured come round, you were a, you know a full part of the band really live. Um, but your your input with them seems to have like just grown and grown over the years. Um, you're on Show Me the Wonder, Let's Go to War, Together Stronger, and producing as well. Uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah pretty much exactly how it <laughs> how it panned out. Um, I met James. I think it's probably 2009. Like m- most most of the. Most of the kind of gigs I've I've gotten and jobs I've got have kind of just been from just kind of going up to people and just introducing myself <laughs> and just being a bit I don't know kind of gutsy about it or whatever. But um, yeah, I think it, we, we were doing Jules Holland the the TV show with with Paolo in in two thousand nine. I guess it would be two thousand nine, and the Manix were on it as well. And it was a five minute camera break or whatever. This journal for plague lovers sort of time. I'd, I'd thought so, uh, yeah. or postcards maybe. Yeah, maybe postcards. Yeah, 2010, yeah. I honestly can't remember what songs they were playing. I just, I just kind of just went like, well, I've got to go and say hello. I've got to go and say hello, kind of thing. And uh, I just kind of ran between the little stages. I just went up to James and I just think I just opened up with like, I'm Gavin, like I'm Welsh or something <laughs> like that. And I was quite nervous. And yeah, and, and, and they kind of liked what Paolo was doing, which was lovely. And and yeah, and then, and then just vaguely stayed in contact and then ended up bumping into him in in um, Cardiff a couple of years later and then then the kind of more involvement and in the playing came from that yeah so the first record would have been Rewind the Film that I played on which was yeah Show Me the Wonder and a couple of other tracks on that which is a lovely record oh, amazing lovely, like Richard yeah. Hawley on that and um, that, that's, a, that's a really quintessentially Welsh album as well that one yeah is that it's um, Welsh Hearts on that right with yes. like Lucy Rose like that sounds amazing it's such a beautiful kind of yeah, such a beautiful song. But yeah, that was that was amazing. I remember that session I was I was quite nervous for. I think it was it was it was like quite soon after my birthday, I remember. It was like a couple of days after and it'd been like a particularly big birthday as well. <laughs> and I remember like yeah, going into the session and just kind of thinking like, oh man, and like you know, seeing all the boys, you know, Nick and um James and Sean just like sat like looking through the glass at me. I'm like, <laughs> right, just let's do a massive horn arrangement now. <laughs> cool. Um but yeah, did that. Which, which 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 went well. I was really happy with how that one came out, actually. Sometimes you just kind of hate what you do, but that was a good one. And yeah, ended up touring a lot with them. And then when James was demoing up, it was kind of through, just kind of by chance, really, that he ended up initially doing the demos with me because they were moving from Faster to the studio that they're in now in uh, near Kyleon. And they needed somewhere to do some demos um, and did the, yeah, did the first couple 
with me and then I think he just kind of liked, liked the vibe down there and we just kind of worked late through the night and James would come in with a really strong sense of, well, the song, you know, the, the finished song and then kind of, this is the kind of feel, I want to try this, this and this. But, but at the same time, was really good about saying, you know, do your thing, like, I want your involvement. And so, yeah, some, some of the tracks, I kind of, they were good enough to let me see through, like um, Hold Me Like a Heaven, which is on Resistance is Futile, which, yeah, co-produced that with Dave Oringa, the, the other producer, the kind of main producer on the record. And then, yeah, and then a few other other little bits on the side like James has come to me to do which is amazing you know it's it's, it's, it's a real pleasure to do that and he'll always um, introduce you on stage as the, as the Kogan canon yeah I'm, I'm not sure where the canon part came from <laughs> I'm always I'm always really adamant about the Kogan bit because it's near Penarth, but I, I, I'm not being called a Penarth boy. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, I always kind of yeah that was adamant about that, but yeah. And you also worked with James on a, on music for a radio documentary, sort of celebrating the incredible exploits we saw of the Welsh football team at uh, Euro 2016, including a reworking of the the, the Welsh fan favourite anthem "Don't Take Me Home." Obviously, we've recently just qualified for Euro 2020. We have. Any plans for a for a song for that? For a song, I thought you were asking my going out there. Like, yes, <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah. I've heard no, I've heard no whispers of a song at all. I hadn't even thought about it actually. I saw the I um, a few of the guys from Madwife uh, who oh, yeah. recently won the yeah absolutely Welsh Music Prize and uh, HMS Morris wrote one, so hopefully they'll record one, and that'd be great to see. You know, female fronted Welsh be amazing. anthem. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Because of course you were involved with <clears throat> Together Stronger the 2016 anthem, yeah. Yes, I did some playing on that. Yeah, I think I played some trumpet on that, I think. Yeah, yeah. because that, that was, um, I remember actually being at Victoria's Festival 2016 and you came up in the acoustic bit with, I think it was Ocean Spray. <clears throat> I remember saying to my mate, that's the guy from Barry Horns. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's why I recognised you at the start. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, briefly, if we can cover you and sure. Barry Horns for a bit as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we started that in ooh, 2000 and something, t- 10, 11. So there was a time of a bit of a, of a lonely Marsh football, so we wanted to do what we could. And, you know, that's pretty much all I can do, play music. So, yeah, we decided to start, start a band. An amazing journey to 2016 as well. Y- yeah, I, I, I can't even put into words how amazing how amazing that time was. I went for the whole thing. I remember just like leaving the house and saying to my like partner, just like, right, I'm, I'm going. Like, it probably won't be that long, but like, it might be. And uh, <laughs> like the Dean Saunders with his car parked <laughs> yeah. at the airport. Yeah, we, we drove actually. We drove the whole thing. So in the end, three and a half weeks later, I came back. But that Belgian game, uh, one of my biggest regrets ever. One of my favourite games of football ever. That mm-hmm. I still get goosebumps. Look, think about now. Be careful when you say things like this. But I think it's probably the best <laughs> night of my life. <laughs> I uh, there, the, I remember when Hal's uh, uh, goal went in. I just like went into uh, the thing is if, if you're not into Welsh football, like this kind of stuff must just sound ridiculous <laughs> when you talk about this. But you're like, well, no, you don't, you, you don't quite understand. But I remember I just went into um, like a state of like shock, and it oh, was just gotcha, like yeah, it was yeah. like it was insane. Like there's like beers flying over, like people like just jumping over you, and I just went into like shock, and I just kept saying like, I can't believe it. Like, I can't that believe was the, it. That was the overriding feeling. And, this, and I just turned around to the guy behind me, who's like an, uh, an older gentleman, and he just grabbed my head and he pulled me into his, his chest and he whispered, it's real, son. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I, <laughs> and I uh, wept into his um, chest. It was, a, it was a beautiful moment. But <laughs> I only went to the first game uh, in Bordeaux, the Slovakia game yeah, where we were staying yeah. in the Ibis Hotel. I mean, if you're going to go to one, that was a, that was a good deal. Yeah, I, well, my wife was like eight, maybe nine months pregnant at the time, so it was like, you're not going to get to go to the whole thing. But yeah, we were in the Ibis Hotel right next to the players and we were sort of sat opposite there in a little bar and mm. then uh, a few members of the Barry Horns popped up. And, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you were there, but it was only like one or two at the time. I, I mean... Th- it's a bit of a blur, that, that. <laughs> especially, especially Bordeaux. Like yeah. that was a, yeah, a bit of a special. blur, but it, it was absolutely special. It was um, well, yeah. It, it felt, it felt like a once in a lifetime thing. Obviously, obviously, obviously not. Another Welsh band who uh, who produced a uh, an anthem for that for that tournament with the Super Furries, mm. and I remember I saw them at um, Eplas, the smaller Cardiff University venue, in 2015, and you were on stage for for a couple of songs there. Yeah, I'm trying to think how that came about. Actually, I think I think I knew Griff before I did some furry stuff. I think I think I met Griff in like Goody Who or something, something <laughs> like that on a night out, and um, and then I just got an email from him about doing a gig in the uh, I think it's like the Southbank Centre or something like that. And I, yeah, I think from that, I'm not sure what year that would have been that you're talking about, but yeah, yeah, we did that complete with white boiler suits. Yeah, I think I've got two white boiler suits in my. In my cupboard now. If I fancy a change ever, I got, I got a second. Yeah, we did that, and then I was lucky enough to do the um, uh, Fuzzy Logic 
Radiator tour, and then the, the Mung Mung as well. Yeah, that tour, which was a, a real treat. I remember seeing the. I remember seeing the Furries play. My brother um, that I was talking about earlier. He uh, he worked in HMV after uni, so he was, yeah. So he was well into his music, and he told me to see the Furries in the CIA, maybe nineteen nine two thousand something like that. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. It was an amazing gig. And I remember they played the last song of like the main set, you know. So you're, you're obviously expecting an encore, and I don't think it was like a particularly big kind of single or anything like that and so they went off and then these like two um, Mexican wrestlers came on and just started <laughs> started wrestling and everyone like stayed for like five minutes and then like ten minutes went by and that, and that was it that, yeah, that was the end of the show yeah. and then people just slowly started filtering <laughs> out and I was just like wow that's your so uncle, cool yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um, you work with obviously you know I can't believe it really the big three you work with Stereophonics as well yeah. how did that all come yes. out yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that was more kind of through a Paolo thing I think we were met backstage at a festival I think it was in Paris or something like that and 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 Kelly had the kind of tent dressing room thing next door. So I think we played a bit of ping pong and, and just, yeah, chatted. And as yeah, simple as that. Kind of, yeah. There were some links. I think some people that were like, they had the same whatever agent or something like that. And um, and so, yeah, we just kind of got on and <laughs> this is like a common theme here. I'm just like bumping into people, having drinks yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, here, and here we are. Yeah, you were saying about like yeah. sort of bumping into people. Yeah. Do you find yourself sort of pinching yourself with the big names you have worked with? I mean, like you were saying about Super Owls, you went to see and blew yeah, your mind. Sure. Did you ever yeah. think like all these years, let you'd be working with them and no one personally. Yeah, if, if I if I think about it, yeah, yeah, it's very surreal. It's very crazy. I mean, I guess it's happened in such a way that it over over you know as I say like add seven and then step up with get cape and then it kind of steps up and then so it's just kind of to an extent what what you do and it feels very normal. But then you'll just you know remember playing. You know, like if you tolerate this in a in a band when you were fourteen, and you think, well, this this is mental because yeah. now I'm in like Cardiff <laughs> Castle doing it or whatever. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, that is that is crazy. I remember that Kelly tour that you were talking about earlier. Because um, he was doing a, like a lot of telling stories about the tracks. Um, it was almost kind of like that kind of almost like Springsteen thing. You know, yeah. he was talking about you know how he wrote this, and so we came on, and the first song he just stood, stood at the front and started talking about him being a kid, and then started talking about this song called "Hurry Up and Wait," which is on uh, the second record, the performance of cocktails, yes. yeah. yeah. And uh, and then like I st- like I started that song on on piano, like you know, which is you know pretty terrifying because I'm not really a pianist as well you know and so you're just kind of playing yeah on your own in a big hall like this song that yeah yeah you just know from well, yeah, being yeah. a teenager you know and I think a lot of those bands a lot of those songs they're just kind of kind of part of you I don't think it's too too big to say that you know no, like I think you, you just you've just known them forever yeah. you know I think it's a great thing about being Welsh with like the football things about the pop culture and the you know everything that goes with that and and all the bands I think there's a lot of crossovers as well in that like you know the, the furries and the manics well, all of them are really into their sport and football and rugby and everything like that and and yeah it's just yeah it's a brilliant thing to be brilliant thing to be part of you also collaborated with Griff on on some of his solo stuff as well and thinking of Pang the the latest yeah. uh, release he had there and how was that it was it was it was really it was really interesting and fun to do uh, the session I did was in a uh, house in Grangetown, actually, with a gentleman called Chrissy Jenkins, who's worked with the Furries for kind of forever yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. various roles as a as an engineer, I think, a producer and a musician and things like that. So yeah, it was just yeah, it was, it was a house on, on Clare Road, I think it was, and um, yeah, we put the horns down for a like seven tracks or something like that. And at that point, it was just it, it sounded like a Griff record, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was like you know nylon string guitar and some some vocals and. Um, yeah, some kind of guide things like that. So at that point, it was still it was still fairly, you know, as I said, griff like, you know, funky yeah, yeah. or whatever, whatever kind of words you want to use. Yeah, and then I heard kind of some kind of mixes back or remixes um, that Muzzy had done, and it yeah, it's an amazing take on it, amazing sounds and really amazing takes, but but totally works as well. I yeah. think you didn't you didn't work with Muzzy then, like sort of like one to one or uh, no, no 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 no. At that point, as I say, it was, it was Griff and yeah. um, and Chrissy. So yeah, when I heard those back, I thought it was amazing how they had their kind of take on yeah. Griff. But, but uh, yeah, again, it just sounds completely natural. I think yeah. it doesn't sound like a huge leap. No, away no, no. from like the rest of what he's done. No. There's another record as well I did with with Griff a few years back, which is called Set Fire to the Stars. Yeah yeah yeah. That that was a really fun one as well we did um we did it in a studio in bristol with a guy called ali chant he's a great producer it's great working with griff i, th- like, I think there's always quite a lot of um i think with griff he, he always kind of wants to see what y- you bring 
you know, there's quite a lot of kind of room there. Yeah. Kind of do, do your thing, you know, I think he, he kind of likes that. So yeah, they're always really fun to do. Thank you so much Gav, for, uh, for sharing everything you've done today. And it's around about this time that we, um, we ask our guests to nominate their favorite album by a Welsh artist. And then we induct it into the Welsh Music Hall of Fame. Nobody else can choose this album now. So this is yours wow. and yours alone. Um, who have you gone with? I have chosen Straight Up by Badfinger. Nice just a record I absolutely love I mean it's, it's in the grand scheme of things actually it wasn't that long ago that I was kind of introduced to Badfinger only probably you know t- 10 years ago or something like that and I read a amazing uh, it was a it was a it was a kind of a review of a bad a Badfinger record and the journalist described them as the band that provided the bridge between the Beatles and Big Star oh, nice. and I remember reading yeah. that and I was just like well that's yeah, that's I'm in. Do you yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like yeah. Beatles are big star. Like I'm, I'm in. That's kind of my street. So, um, so yeah, I think amazing records for one, and then just the whole story as well is is it's tragic. Like you know, yeah, it's just very, very, very tragic, but but an interesting story as well. And yeah. And um, the Manics are huge devotees of uh, Badfinger, and they've gone on the record of saying is um, they think they're the greatest Welsh band of all time. Um, have you spoken too much to the band over the years about Badfinger? I think I think it may have even been James that initially kind of like turned me on to everything with Badfinger, and it's that thing, isn't it, with Badfinger? That it's the the without you thing. Yeah, I, I love doing that to people yeah. when that comes on in a pub or a bar. I'm like, well, obviously, you know, it's originally, and they're like, yeah, we know Harry Nilsson, right? Like, ah. You know, so that's the great thing you can do about that. But yeah, I, I, I urge anyone listening if you if you kind of don't if you're not familiar with the Badfinger, you know, the, the, the story and all the records, it's yeah, just immerse yourself. It's it's it's, it's brilliant. Uh, haven't the Manics got um, one of the old recording desks at Door to the River, I think, with... No? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. If that's true, I'm going to ask James. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sorry. There's such a, a comfort to the songs as well as like a warmth to them. Like they're instantly recognisable. Like even if you've never heard it before, like you know, the melody is already in your head before you've listened to it, especially on songs like Baby Blue. It's, I think this is probably the sort of least well-known band, mm-hmm. unfortunately and surprisingly, that we've had chosen so far you know on the podcast yeah. um so hopefully yeah people will um listen to it afterwards i think that's why I, like i wanted to talk about it as well like th- th- I, there's a lot of other great welsh records and a load that i could probably have picked as well but it was kind of as i said when you take it all in and the whole story and the characters and all that i think that's why i wanted to i wanted to talk about it yeah i mean to me they are the sort of great lost band but I don't think you can sort of refer to any band as a great lost band who sold like 14 million records in mm-hmm. the 70s alone yeah um, but they, they deserve to have a longer lasting legacy today mm-hmm. um, and it frustrates me how the wider public you know they're, they're revered in the music press they're revered by rock fans but the wider public don't know who they are in terms of um, I mean, I went to see them at the Globe, um, very sort of tenuous lineup with Bob Jackson from The Fortunes, uh, right. who's their old keyboardist, yeah. uh, about 50 people there. Really? You know? yeah. yeah. So so do, do you find that same sort of sense of frustration that people just don't know quite to the extent that you want them to, who they are? Ab- absolutely. I, th- I think I think that, I, th- I think well, someone I mentioned earlier, actually, someone like I can't believe we don't celebrate a huge amount more in this country is, is like John Cale as well. Yeah. To be a statue somewhere. Velvet yeah, I mean, I know. It's, you know, that's insane. But like when you kind of, you know, when we talk about bands and Welsh artists, like it's kind of rare that name yeah, that, that name pops up. And the same with Badfinger. I mean, everything. You know, the first first band signed to um, Apple Records that wasn't yeah. you know kind of Beatles affiliated, and like you said, sold sold an absolute ton of records, mm. but made nothing. Made absolutely nothing. You know, they were they were kind of they they signed a management contract. I think I was like probably I guess like the early seventies or something with an American guy who who just absolutely shafted That's them. Stan Polly, is it? Yeah, yes. yeah. Stan Polly, who who was who is well, this is what I'm talking about with the story. It's amazing. Like he had like connections to the mafia. He was mm. kind of um he was investigated into into that stuff. And yeah, he basically he signed he got them to sign a deal which meant they would be paid a salary, which was very, very little, and then all their earnings from uh, uh, touring and royalties, publishing everything would be held in a bank account, which would then be their, you know, that's what that that would be the um, what they would get in however long, and it just never materialised. It just absolutely never materialised. They were releasing these records, but still all living in a house in London together. You know, originally from Swansea, I should yeah, say yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to revisit uh, something you said earlier about uh, people not knowing who wrote without you originally. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do love the Harry Nielsen version. Mm-hmm. 
But it's a real heartbreaker to me that people don't know that it was, you know, when you think like Roy Carey, one of the richest people on the planet, yeah. got, you know, a huge hit with it. Harry Nielsen had a huge I, I love hit to, with it. I love to think that Mariah Carey's a massive bad finger. Yeah. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's why I say, we need don't to cover this year, Mariah. Yeah, so. But yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I know they had an Ivan Novello for Without You, but it's so sad to think that, mm. you know, there's someone as rich as Mariah Carey and yet they were an absolute financial dire straits really. yeah absolutely it was it was a long a long time after that they even got the kind of recognition yeah, yeah. the recognition i think i think they got an ivan novello for it they say um yeah so it was, it was a long time after that and i think you know ultimately so to pete ham who was i'd probably say the chief songwriter in the band who yeah. was from swansea uh, ended up committing suicide you know, i think it was 75 it was only three or four years after straight up was released i mean and yeah. was released you know i think they released a record a yeah month i was just about that. to say um, i mean it's yeah it's so sad amazingly prolific band in terms of like I think mm-hmm. in five years they released an album pretty much about every six months, which is incredible. I think I think they were tied into that though. I think like Stan Polly, like you say, I think he he got them to sign a mag- management deal which required them to release a record every six months. <laughs> I mean, which is that's you know that's a workload. That's yeah, that's that's a lot to do. And and then yeah, weren't making anything from those records. Yeah, I think the f- the first I think was it the four album deal with Apple, and then he got them another deal with like Warner's. Warner's ended up. Like suing Badfinger Enterprise or whatever the kind of company name was, ended up suing them. So they couldn't they couldn't sign with anyone else. Because they were in this legal battle with Warner, and they couldn't sign a management. No one would touch them. No other management company would touch them because of you know the the, the, the everything they had going on with Stan Polly as well. Yeah, you say about Polly. I mean, um, terribly sad. He's mentioned in um, P. Ham's uh, suicide note. Yeah, and um, it's amazing really that they didn't get the true recognition they deserve like we've been talking about blue plaques in um, previous episodes it's, it's it's just feels fitting that it's been put right now in terms of like you know he was days short of his 28th birthday pregnant wife he, he mm-hmm. killed himself amazing talent burning brightly and you know you tend to think he could have gone on for like another 20 30 years with the talent he had but there is a blue plaque now um in his hometown uh, near the railway station in swansea installed in 2012 you know, I, I, I did not know that there you i'm, are gonna, gonna, I'm gonna, gonna have, have to make a, 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 a pilgrimage <laughs> that, that sort of concept of the the 27 club you know the lots of musicians who, yeah. who, who killed himself in the 27 he was the same and there's always that sort of you know maybe a slightly uneducated uh statement that comes out about you know they they had so much to live for they you know the success that they had mm. and stuff like that and obviously that was the complete opposite with him you know he, yeah. he left with nothing i think yeah i think as as the story goes i think he like received a call that day or the day before from someone just saying like like all the money in america is gone like you don't have anything and he as you say he had a baby on the way i think he just bought a house i think i was yeah i was reading um i think he went to the pub with like tom evans who was the uh bass player in the band um, yeah. just had a had a bunch of whiskey and fortunately hung himself yeah. and like something mm. another sort of like as everything w- would be with the band a sort of posthumous sort of achievement that you know the mm-hmm. song baby blue we mentioned earlier was uh was featured on the the last ever scene of uh, breaking right. bad and, yeah. and, it, was am- and it was amazing when that, that happened was, oh, right, when that kicked in i was just like yeah <laughs> it, was, it was such a proud moment wasn't it? oh man it's like journey with uh, with Sopranos as well but obviously mm. a little bit more personal for you and, 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 and people in Wales yeah. but it was the first time that that mm-hmm. ever charted you know yeah. uh, UK charts number 73 right. testament to the song as well yeah but, true you know like on the, however many years later 40 years later whatever, that it would be used on you know like yeah. a huge show like that and, and kind of plucked from kind of obscurity really like you say you know, a lot of people don't know who they are and everything, but that yeah. In terms of the record, like Baby Blue is probably probably up there for me in yeah, terms same. of favorite tracks. It's probably two yeah. or, or three or four or five. Was it? There's, there's, a, there's a few. It's such a, a sort of euphoric sound that you feel good as soon as you hear it. Yeah, I mean anything that's got that kind of that like dum, 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 that beat on, like, I'm in kind of thing. That's that's like the Springsteen thing for me as well. Like fists in the air. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about the album specifically, um, Straight Up, which is their third album. Um, they were the first um, Apple band uh, on the label in 1968. Strangely, this one came out in the US first in December 1971, and then um, it came out in Britain in February the following year. So it goes to show how much the record company was pushing them uh, stateside. You know, they wanted them to be this success in the US, first and foremost. 
Yeah, I think I think it was unmatched in the UK though. I think that was probably one of the big problems is they weren't really pushed. I know they were kind of dogged a long time by the by the Beatles comparison, mm-hmm. which I think is something they they often wanted to kind of distance th- themselves from, which was which is difficult when you're signed to Apple and your first big yeah. hit was written and produced by McCartney. And the name Bad Finger as well came from uh, yeah. you know the working title of uh, with it'll help for my friends. Yeah, Bad Finger Boogie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, they they did very well. They did very well in America. I I think I, I did do a bit of reading into the uh, the lyrics of Baby Blue. Because you know he sings about Dixie as yeah. well. I was yes. like, I wanted to find out all that, so I kind of I read the book they have, and um, it was it was a girl he met at a gig. He had he had a long term with Pete Ham. He had a long term girlfriend that uh, eventually split up, and he and he wasn't with anyone for a long time. And then he met this girl called Dixie that was a, um, that was dragged along to a Bad Finger show by her friend had never heard of Bad Finger or anything like that. And they got chatting one night, and he just said like, Do you want to just come on the road with us? You know, yeah. and come to the West Coast with us. And then when he went back home, I'm not sure he ever saw her again. And that was that's what Baby Blue is about you know he sings about my Dixie Deer and oh nice yeah so they were, they were, they were I think they did a lot better in the States they toured the States a lot I think, have you seen um, Almost Famous not for a long time is there a, is there a bad there's not a bad thing oh. finger song on, on the soundtrack but like Stillwater the band the, the fictional band from there I think the whole and the whole sort of soundtrack sort of uh, soundtrack encapsulates the, the sort of sound of Bad Finger, and there's got to be some form of uh, reference there because Cameron Crowe yeah. was a big, you know, Rolling Stone journalist and would have probably yeah. referenced and covered. I'll them. have to I'll have to go back with that in yeah. mind actually, hmm. and especially this album sort of like because it's a slight, slight departure from sort of previous more rocky albums. Is a little bit more yeah, no dice. Know, the record before is a lot kind of I guess you say rawer, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's a bit more kind of like a, like a boogie record, isn't yeah. it? At times, kind of thing. Yeah. But I think that's what I love, especially the Pete. Ham tunes. I know we'll get. I'm sure we'll get into all the songs. <laughs> like, I was excited to talk about it. The they're kind of they're like bigger than that though. They're like deeper than that. Yes. You know, I mean, there's just such a beautiful kind of. I don't know, man. Just conjures up kind of like a weird melancholy and nostalgia in you or something. Yeah. You know, that's what, that, like something like name of the game when you've got like that. Yeah, that really sort of um, reverby piano. Mm-hmm. That then you know to sort of like it's, it's sort of there's a counterpoint to another instrument. I can't remember where it's off my head. Maybe it's a guitar, and then you have got the bass coming in, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just um, yeah, the the production on it's fantastic. Yeah, as well. great sounding record. I mean, in terms of the production, I think it was um, a little bit of a patchwork of a yes of a record in terms of you know uh, okay. what I say producers and think it was Jeff Emmerich the is that right the um, the I Beatles actually, engineer. I actually prefer his version of Name of the Game. That, that's well, the, the one, one. It's, it's more euphoric sound it's got the horns on it I mean, like the orchestral kind but, of but one I, I have been listening to the, the Harrison version which is on the album yes yeah which is the more mournful piano-led one? Yeah, that's what but, I love. But interestingly, on the greatest hits, it's the Emmerich version. Oh, really? On the greatest hits? Yeah. Uh, greatest, sorry, greatest hits uh, release. It's that one. Yeah. I mean, I love I love both versions. I feel like the uh, the Emmerich version is a little bit almost like too big for the song. Yeah. Like the, yeah. like you know, you got this big orchestral thing with the horns, and I think I don't. For me, that the sentiment so maybe, maybe gets a little, a little bit, bit lost in there. But um, yeah, I think so. I think it was Jeff Emmerich that did the. Well, I think they recorded the record. Essentially, and then handed it in, and, and Apple weren't happy with it. Did Phil Spector? Did he sort of? He, 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 he was, it? I think, yeah. But this is what I mean, like the, like the names yeah, that are all involved what, with this. What, you know, it's like George Harrison and Phil yeah, Spector. Yeah, this is what I was going to say. Like in terms of like um, the Beatles Association is a real sort of blessing and curse in terms of like obviously it's amazing for them in terms of the fan basic attracts mm. for them, but also they get sort of uh, typecast of that sort of um, particular sound. But yeah, what, what when I was researching this, it's like the sheer level of names they're associated with so there's coming um you know come and get it uh, which is the mccartney single yeah. um it's on the 50th anniversary of um abbey road now in the outtakes by the beatles and also um they played on john lennon's imagine album yeah they were on uh, all things must pass yeah that, and that's Harrison. one of my favorite records as well george Harrison. amazing all things must pass. That, um they're yeah, on incredible. the concert for bangladesh apparently yeah. did a rendition uh pete hammond harrison of here comes the sun without even a rehearsal yeah they did if i've i've seen the footage of that i think it's online somewhere and he like bless him man he looks so scared <laughs> pete Ham, he's just like not moving at all yeah. you know uh, he's just kind of there but Sounds amazing. I want Todd run 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 another producer on the yeah. Album. So I think it was Jeff Jeff Emmerich, as Start, I said, yeah, yeah, did the sessions, and then they brought George Harrison in, and then I think because it was all around the same time, I think because of the concert for Bangladesh and some other projects he had going on, he didn't yes, feel he could right, see yeah. the record yeah. through. Yeah. So, um, so Todd Rungren came in, who I'm a fan of as well. I mean, this is it's like no surprise. I'm a fan of the band. Like everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. that's kind of involved in the project, I loved. And I think at that point, Todd Rungren probably only had like a couple of records of his home, but of his own, but just engineered like a, a band record, like the band record. Yes. I'm a big fan of the band as well. So 
so yeah, he came in and I think we recorded a couple of tracks, remixed some of the other ones and things like that. So in terms of production, it was a, yeah, a little bit of a, a, of a patchwork, but I think it doesn't sound it. No, not as, as know, a collection like, of songs. They yeah, seem yeah. unified. Like, and Yeah, it was yeah. all mixed by, by Todd Rundgren. Yeah. So. Very sort of different approaches though, in terms of like the, the band got on very well with uh, Harrison, who, yeah. who was sort of, uh, he did acknowledge that some songs sounded too beatly. Like um, there's I'll Be The One, which he rejected, first of all. Right. But it was quite a different approach from uh, Running Grid. Um, apparently didn't go down that well with the band. He was a bit of like a sort of Sergeant Major type. and But, right, okay. uh, but he did c- um, complete the production within two weeks, apparently, which is right. amazing, really. Yeah, I think I know George Harrison was, um, he, he, he was a big fan of Pete Ham. I know they were like really close. There's this track. Uh, there's a track called uh, Day After Day on the record, which is, there's a amazing kind of um, slide guitar kind of, uh, duet between um, Harrison and Pete Hamm, which apparently took like ages to kind of get that exactly synced up. It's so beautiful, like absolutely so beautiful. But yeah, I, I, I yeah, I think as you say, the, the the Beatles thing is funny because they were just so inherently connected to the Beatles through so many different ways. It, it almost felt you know, inevitable that that kind of constant comparison would be made. And I think they 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 didn't like that, you know, in no, in, in the no. long run. And I, I you noticed that um, there there was one um, reviewer who even said um, this album straight up is bad finger for sale because the cover resembled Beatles for sale. Oh so much. no way! Yeah, yeah, they're the four of them. Okay, but yeah, yeah. To be honest, that's just a band photo. You know, they 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 they. they I think they're getting comparisons where they're not really fair. Yeah, I guess if if a, if there's a story which follows a band around, I mean, people are going to look for it, aren't they? Yeah, you it's know, easy way out. It's an easy comparison. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're extra doing this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but even like you know, Klaus Vormann, who's the artist or photographer that worked with the Beatles, he plays piano on um, Suitcase. All oh, right. As okay. well. So yeah, and I think like that like you've said about it in terms of your musical career that you know there's. A community, and you've sort of gone over and introduced yourself. To, you know, I'm from Wales, and, yeah. and these sort of things. <laughs> and you know that 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 community of, of musicians, and particularly under the Apple sort of um, mm. umbrella, you know, must have been just a normal thing to do, rather than something that you know was fostered or or manipulated in any way. Yeah, I guess you just can't kind of under underestimate how how huge the Beatles were at that point. Exactly, if you know what I mean. So it's kind yeah. of it'd be difficult to if if ev- if if everyone in the press is saying you know. You've, we've got the next Beatles on the yeah. way. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a curse, isn't it? Yeah. Um, straight up, I had a bit of a, a mixed response with the press uh, to start off with. And I don't know whether that is that the band had been built up and they wanted to bring them down or what. I mean, you, you find this with a lot with albums that have gone on to be classics mm-hmm. um, years later. Do you feel an album needs time to become legendary? Um, and is there such a thing as an instant classic? I think both of those things can be true. I think de- depending on the, the the record, the artist, and and the, the time that it happens. I think another band like who I mentioned earlier, like Big Star, is probably a, quite an interesting comparison there because it's the same kind of drill when it came out. Like, not, you know, it wasn't wasn't really that big. I mean, twenty years later, just absolutely huge amount of bands that cite Big Star as being a reference for them. You had the whole kind of like teenage fan club kind of movement and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely massive. I mean. <sighs> In terms of instant classic, I, 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 I don't know. I think I've, you know, especially like making a lot more music now and, and, and be involved in production. I kind of, I, 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 try, I try not to think too much about that, if you know what I mean. You know, I think you just need to, and I think it's the way all these records are made. You just kind of, you're in that moment and you're, you're writing a song and it's three in the morning and okay, we're going to put piano on it now and we're going to do that. And, and maybe, you know, some kind of alchemy is involved and, and, it, yeah, and, it, and, it, and it becomes an absolute, an absolute classic because of, you know, as I say, time, place, circumstances. So yeah, I, th- I, think, I think both can be true. I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> so you said it was pr- a pretty difficult uh, question we asked you to choose your favourite Welsh or album by a Welsh artist. Mm. Um, what other ones come to mind when, when we asked you the question? I mean, there's, there was just a, like a whole, a whole bunch, you know? I, th- I think the, the, the John Cale, the famous record, Paris 1919, yeah. came in there. Some of the some of the Manics ones, I'm, I'm sure that you know Manics Furries, Phonics, I'm sure all these kind of bands came up. Everything Must Go was huge for me. I was probably that little bit too young for um, Holy Bible, but he, but now you know, yeah, absolutely love that record. Yeah, Everything Must Go. As I said, I, I covered some of those songs in in bands that I played in. Um, I was trying to think the. Furry's record that came out around, I guess Gorilla it would have been for me. Slightly like, yeah. slight later, that was a big record for me. Word gets around. I mean, there's there's a there's a whole bunch. There, there really is. Tom Jones live at Caesar's Palace, huge. <laughs> I'm check that one out. 
<laughs> it's in my vinyl collection. Well, Gareth, thank you so much for your time today. We thank really you. appreciate it, mate. It's oh, been a bit, bit of an emotional rollercoaster. I haven't waffled too much. <laughs> no, it's, been, it's, been, it's been brilliant, mate. Honestly, talking through, you know, what an amazing career you've had. You know, you talked about, you know, you picked up the, the trumpet when you were eight and, you know, where is taking you and then talk mm. through um, the classic Badfinger album and, you know, sad story, but beautiful album and mm-hmm. hopefully the you know, the small audience that we do have that hopefully will grow over time will, you know, pick up this album for the first time. Yeah, I totally. To- I urge everyone to, to go and check out. It's quite difficult to get hold of in vinyl, by the way. I've tried that a few times. You'll pay like a couple of hundred quid for that. It's <laughs> a bit of a collector's item. But um, yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank real you pleasure. so much, mate. Cheers. To finish this week, we've got a great tune from uh, a brilliant uh, four-piece indie band from Wrexham. Real young kids, but with a songwriting talent that really um, belies their sort of young uh, age. Already making um, 130,000 plus uh, plays on Spotify with their tracks like Kerosene and uh, Waster and Shawshank, which I strongly recommend you checking out. This is the fourth and final track of their upcoming uh, debut EP, This State I'm In. It's called Mariana. that way it's impossible to let you down again gave me half a name then left to go put more glitter on your face Cheeks are glowing 